Hello, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I'm your host, Dave Sedia, and today we're joined by our guest, Leslie Conewine. Hey. And on the panel, we have Thomas Alot. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about accessibility and how accessibility is not a React problem. So before we get started, let's, um, Leslie, could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am currently a front-end engineer at Netlify, which you may be familiar with. Uh, it's a platform for deploying and managing modern web projects uh, using the Jamstack. So it's sort of like hosting for static sites on steroids. I am a front-end there, so I'm building new features on you know every day. And it runs on a React front-end as well, so I'm working in React every day on Netlify. We actually deploy Netlify on Netlify, so it's a little meta. Huh. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, Netlify is great. I use, I use Netlify for my site. And it's just so easy to just push things to GitHub and it just magically works. <laughs> that's, that's our goal, magic. Hey folks, I just want to let you know quickly about Netlify. Netlify is a really cool system for hosting what are traditionally known as static sites. However, the real benefit that I've been finding is that I don't have to mess with a back end. I can just set things up. I build the website out. I've been using a system called 11DJS and you just deploy it. And then anything that you have that you want to do, you can do on the front end. So if you want to pull in some kind of database with Firebase or something else, if you want to collect form data, Netlify provides all kinds of services that make it easy to do all that stuff. If you're trying to do serverless, they have a really, really neat serverless setup that will allow you to deploy your websites without having to deploy a backend and it'll do some of the work for you. I just, I just love it. So if you're looking for a way that you can actually deploy a website that only has front-end technology in it, gives you all the tools that you typically need for the back-end without having to actually program the back-end, then give them a try. Go check them out at Netlify.com. Yeah, I feel bad I haven't tried it yet. Like I see, keep reading all these things, like, you should try this thing. I'm like, oh, I haven't yet. I promise to think about trying it soon. <laughs> I promise it also takes about like two minutes uh, the first time you set it up. So it's, it's pretty quick. It was very easy. I just, I migrated off of DigitalOcean, which I thought was easy before. And Netlify took like, yeah, it was like two minutes. <laughs> they said, so, if it's a nail for you, it's wonderful. How did you get passionate about accessibility? It's a great question. I, before Netlify, I was working in the agency world in New York City. Uh, and a lot of the sites that we were building had to be accessible by law. Uh, <laughs> you're building for places with a physical presence, right? Like hotel website that has to, by law, uh, according to the ADA, um, be accessible. So I was sort of thrown into the fire and had to figure out how to, how to meet all the guidelines. Interesting. So, so you mentioned that sites with physical presences need to be accessible. Is that, is that also true of sites that don't have a physical presence? You know, I'm not 100% sure, actually, according to the ADA, what specifically has to, but I believe it's something along the lines of a place that like anything that has a storefront where you're going to go in um, mm. and do business physically has to also be accessible on the web. I think a lot of that is because the ADA is a little bit outdated, right? It came about around, you know, a different time. The web was not kind of where it is now. And I believe they've been trying to work on sort of a web amendment to the ADA and they just have not quite gotten around to it. And so there are kind of like versions of it floating around, uh, but nothing since down. Yeah, my experience with accessibility is is having uh, contracts with companies that had contracts with the government. And the government, I think all governments, require you to have really good compliance with rules and stuff. <laughs> and I'm all for it. 
I believe in inclusive inclusivity and you know at least doing the basics to to make to not lock people out of things. Yeah, for sure. When I was working on these sites and kind of thrown into it at first, it was super overwhelming, sort of like, oh my gosh, there are all of these rules I have to follow. But the the good news is, is that you're doing a really positive thing for the web, right? The web is for everyone. And so really making it so that anyone can access what you're building is such a huge part of that. So in general, like for people listening to this who aren't familiar, like what are the, what do you actually have to do? What are the things that you have to care about in order to to get the you know golden stamp of approval of you're accessible now. So there is officially a long list of things that you have to do, <laughs> right? Um, the WCAG, the I think that's Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, has very specific tenets of sort of what uh, every element needs to to do and and sort of what meets the requirements. And there are certain there are different levels as well, so you can meet certain kind of levels of accessibility depending on who who the product is for. Uh, but the main things I would say are like the bottom line is semantic HTML, semantic JSS, JSX, making sure that you're thinking about the, ele- the elements and tags that you're using and that they make sense, trying to avoid what we would call divitis, right? Um, <laughs> so what's divitis? Divitis, yeah. Uh, it's often something that people say is a React problem. Uh, where you're using a lot of divs as wrapper elements. Right. Um, So like when you have a new component, it has to be wrapped in a div, right? And so you end up with all these like errant divs just sitting around that aren't really doing anything or helping anything. Yeah, I remember back in the day, back in, oh man, like 2005, 6, 7 era, that, you know, we used to call them fluff nodes of like, you know, the dream of CSS was that you could take semantic markup throw a, you know, six megabytes of CSS at it and it turns into a gorgeous beauty. But the reality is that you you also need extra nodes to hang things off of in order to get like the rounded corners back before, you know, you could just set that as a CSS property. And the just the DOM just got so heavy. And then the original version of React, it didn't have fragments. So you ended up getting just like these deeply nested div node documents and it was not as good. <laughs> yeah. You know, the thing, the, the thing I think a lot of people don't realize about semantic tags is that they have roles built into them, right? So like a button theoretically has role equals button. That attribute is like baked into the button element by default. You can add those things after as well, right? You could stick a role equals button on a div, but like, don't do that <laughs> because the button what? is better. A button already exists that has that. And that's what makes it positive, right? That's what makes it semantic is that it sort of has info that the browser and, and assistive technologies understand by default. So what does the, the role mean? I mean, I, I, I understand this stuff and use it a little bit, but I'm more React Native these days, so it doesn't, it's not as applicable in, in that world. You kind of have to do things accessibility-wise a little bit differently. So what does the concept of a role mean in the DOM? Not JavaScript specifically, just HTML land. Yeah, so the role essentially is giving the, the browser more information about what that tag or element is going to do. So with something like a button, right, there are certain keyboard shortcuts that you can use typically uh-huh. on a button, right? You can hit enter to make a button activate um, or to you know trigger the on-click uh, right. listener on that button. And so that role kind of gives 
the, the browser that information to know that there are certain things that the user is going to expect both keyboard wise and sort of in how, how that element actually functions. Okay, so it's kind of like functionality you get for free from the browser just by giving the browser more information of, okay, the intended use of this tag is, let's just pretend this is a button, role equals button, we've hired this div to, well, maybe not a div, but we've hired this thing to fill the, the position of button, we couldn't find a real button, this is the best we could, we want to be inclusive, hiring anybody to fit this role, the role is button, you happen to be a div, we'll take you, you know. Yeah, but don't do that, right? That's part of why we say semantics or the semantic HTML is so important is because you don't have to remember all those roles, right? There's ah. a ton of them and there's a lot that you sort of need to understand about how to use them properly. So it's just messy to have to memorize all of that stuff. It's actually a lot easier to remember the semantic tags. And although there are a lot of them, there are tend to be like a smaller amount that you're actually using regularly. Yeah. So I remember like in the HTML5 days, they they added a whole mess more of extra semantic. Like, do we have to use that stuff? Does it matter? Like there's like main. I would argue that it does matter because those things are giving more context to assistive technologies to understand what those wrappers are doing, right? So if you actually test with a screen reader or some other type of assistive technology, you're ah. going to hear something different if you use a main versus a div in that same spot. So that, that brings on an extra interesting topic is, is testability. I remember um, RPFlow, Ryan Florence, he's trying to, to build some new React elements that are very um, reusable and very you know, accessible, accessible uh, for free. And he talks a lot about testing with screen readers and you know, JAWS. And so what's the, what do you actually have to do to, to test and verify that things are accessible? That's a big area. Um, there's sort of a lot to do. And I would say this is one of the things that kind of scares people off about accessibility. I think they get nervous about sort of all these things they suddenly need to understand, like screen readers and how to mm -hmm. use one. I do think it's important to, to try one. Uh, I would say most people are on Macs. VoiceOver is built in. So that's a good one to start with if you just want to understand what a screen reader even is like. And there's a little tutorial that will actually walk you through how to use VoiceOver when you open it up. So it's not as scary as it sounds. Um, it's actually just trying it with a screen reader. But there are a lot of amazing tools also that you can use um, to check without necessarily having to open the screen reader. I think Microsoft actually just uh, released one, Accessibility Insights, I think is what it's called. Oh, cool. and it's it sort of allows you to do like a walkthrough accessibility audit of a particular site that you're working on. There are a lot of tools like that. Axe is one. Um, and some of these are built right into Axe, A-X-E. Okay. And a lot of these are built right into DevTools, right? So Lighthouse has sort of taken some of this on. And so if you just open DevTools and go to the audits tab, uh, you can turn on accessibility as an audit and you can just run that. And it's, again, it's, automated. So it's not going to catch everything. It's not like as good as a person going through with a screen reader and testing, but it's going to give you kind of the highlights of like, here are the things you, you absolutely need to fix. Interesting. I've noticed DevTools has gotten a lot better with a little, little color contrast thing in the last few months, oh, maybe yeah. or so, where like, if you pick color that is not very accessible, it'll give you like red check marks or red X's or something. And you get like a series of green check marks if you're, if you're like extra good contrast. Yeah, I would say accessibility actually doesn't start with the engineer. I think it starts with the designer or with whoever is kind of concepting what, what you're doing. 
because I think designers also need to be considerate, considering accessibility in sort of how they decide to display information. Yeah, there's definitely, I feel like there was a trend for a while where to use like very light text on very gray backgrounds, just because it looks nice, but it's very hard to read. Yep. So about the HTML elements is an interesting thing because it does feel like there's there's just like a like a huge pile of possible HTML elements to use. Like, do you have like a, a grab bag of HTML elements you usually use for like semantic HTML elements? I would say just off the top of my head that the ones I use most often, um, I don't use main most often, but it's an important one to know and to use probably once on, on each page. Section, article, header, nav, footer, aside, those are probably the ones that I pick up most often. Cool. Yeah, it seems like the the semantic elements, I mean, all of HTML is really built for for documents more than applications and the, the elements kind of sound more like documenty things. So so there's always sort of this, this fuzzy like, how do I interpret an aside in my app? Like <laughs> is that a sidebar or is it like a thing in the middle of the document that isn't really part of the I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so it's, true. It it's sometimes I I it's hard because it feels subjective, especially in apps, right? Like how am I interpreting this properly for yeah. kind of the way that I'm using it? And there is a little bit of that. I think um, usually when I have that sort of question, I either go to Twitter or I'll try to find a demo or an example mm. from someone who knows this better than I do. Mm. Someone like Marcy Sutton or Hayden Pickering or one of these kind of accessibility heroes who has examples out there. And that's really like the best way to, or at least it gives me backup that the way I'm using the element makes sense. Yeah, I imagine like eventually you get like a gut feel for which elements to use where but probably building that up takes a little bit of time of deliberately looking them up. Yeah, I would say just MDN, right? Like when yeah. you're building something and you're laying out your DOM structure, even if it's just JSX, like just open up MDN and be like, hmm, I want to see what a side actually does. And it gives you a nice little definition. Yeah, pretty much just avoid using divs, right? Like every time you're ready to use a div, like go look yeah. up something else instead. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good rule of thumb. Um, I think the the kind of the principle that applies with the the web is just things change so much here. You can't just get comfortable because things are constantly changing and updating and improving. And like I got really comfortable with you know here are all the semantic ways of of building things back in the two thousands. But then when everything upgraded to HTML5, that's kind of when I started doing React Native-y stuff. And so I haven't kept up to date as much. So a lot of my use of some of the newer elements is just like, I think I'm supposed to use this, but I don't know what I'm doing. It's just like being comfortable with being uncomfortable about feeling like a noob, even though I've been doing this for 20 years, suddenly I'm a noob again. Got to relearn everything. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, I'll do it. That Some of it is ongoing. definitely memorization, right? Like you just kind of yeah. have to use it and start to get comfortable with it and reference it. But also like just looking at other people's code is helpful and doing code reviews with someone who can just point it out to you. Yeah. How has the shift to mobile uh, changed the accessibility landscape? That's also a big question. Mobile, it has sort of its own quirks. Um, you can also test with screen readers on mobile, believe it or not. There are things yeah. that will read out what's on your screen on a mobile device. Um Typically, I would say people with like low vision are using uh, uh, mobile, you know, more than uh, someone who is has no sight at all. Um, but it can still be helpful. And you know, there's if, if, for example, on a site, 
someone has turned off the ability to pinch and zoom in. That's like oh, an important yeah. uh, gesture to have for accessibility for someone who needs, you know, to, to see larger text or to zoom in on a particular area. And so people who maybe disable that on their website, something like a, a mobile screen reader becomes even more important because people now need that page read to them because they can't actually zoom into it. Yeah, that, that one that one kills me. I mean, <laughs> I like to be able to zoom into things just because sometimes they're too small or whatever. Like, I don't know, like I, I think the the there was like this nice golden age where like mobile browsers were st- first coming about and no one was really making mobile sites. So it was just like the full site and you had to zoom in. And now there's there's sort of this move towards, I'm going to make the mobile site and it's perfect and you should not change the zoom <laughs> level ever. Yeah. It reminds me of like the the old, like uh, late 90s days of like, here is a, a, a Photoshop document, produce this pixel per pixel exactly. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So what are some things that people could do that are, do you think, do you think there's, there's sort of a, is there a sliding scale to accessibility where, where like something is better than nothing? So like, yeah, like 80, I, personally, I personally would say that there is, um, and that, that something is better than nothing. I don't know that everyone would agree with me on that. Uh, so that's more of a personal opinion. You know, I think there are some easy wins, like using semantic elements, right? That's like bottom line, something you're already going to have to lay out the DOM structure. So you might as well use the right elements for it. But there are a lot of other kind of like more advanced things you also have to think about, um, like managing focus, uh, which can be a little bit of a bigger beast. I think one of the big things is just making sure you don't turn off focus outlines in your styles. A lot of those like standard, you know, normalized sort of style sheets, like set focus to outline zero. So they're like removing the outline. Don't do that. (laughs) I heard there's a new CSS thing for you can turn off the highlight when you're using the mouse without turning it off when you're using the keyboard. I forget how to do that, but I know it's a thing. That yeah, can... I've heard of that too. Yeah, yeah, there's, um. so it's, I'm of course forgetting the name of it as well, but it's not supported in all browsers yet. There is a polyfill for it though. So you can, I actually have used it on a couple of projects. So basically it's going to mean that the focus style isn't actually going to appear if you're interacting with the element using your mouse, but if you're using a keyboard, it will recognize that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that'll be nice. I think, and, and you can you can give it a new outline, right? You can style the outline. You just need to leave something there so you can tell that it's focused. But it doesn't have to be that like default bars are blue thing, but it should be something, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, there are actually a lot of options um, with outline. I mean, you can change the color. You can get rid of the glow altogether and make it like more of a hard border. There are a lot of things you can do to make it not look. Yeah, box shadow is a good good substitute, right? It doesn't have to be the outline property. Yeah, exactly. Then I've seen some things like what you were saying about managing the focus. And that's something that um, Ryan Florence was talking a lot about with his thing of just like, what is the expected behavior? Like when you're switching to a new tab or whatever, or like clicking a link and you're using like JavaScript navigation where it's not actually loading a new page. Just like in being very intentional of how you move the focus for people with screen readers, but also for people with motor issues, just like issues physically interacting with the device. Yeah, definitely. Um, Managing focus can be one of those things that I think are the reason why people say accessibility in React particularly or in JavaScript, you know, libraries is hard because single page apps, by the way that they work, are like in traditional page, when you reload a new page, like the focus is going to start back up at the top. 
But in React, you have yeah. to tell it, right? If you're like mounting a new component or something is like moving around, you then have to say, okay, I want focus to, to start here when this change has happened. Uh, so it does require a little bit of extra work, but it's not impossible. And there are some good things happening in that space as well. Um, Ryan Florence's Reach Router, which is kind of an accessible single page app router is merging with React Router. So I think that's like some baked in wins for React users. I saw that. I think that's going to be great. Yeah. And I know uh, Gatsby is already using that. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty slick. Yeah. Because like, I swear, you know, I've been doing the web since the 90s. And I think six months ago is the first time I've ever heard anybody say anything about managing focus. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, it's, it's crazy. There's even, right, you can even go further down that rabbit hole and talk about focus traps, right? Which is when yeah. you open a modal or like a hamburger menu nav, you actually don't want the person, if they're tabbing through, to suddenly tab to the end of that list of navigation items. And then suddenly their focus is now like back on the page below it. Yeah. You don't want that to yeah. happen, right? If you have like a modal open so that you actually want to trap focus. So you kind of have to manually say, okay, if you hit the end of this list, you need to send the focus back up to like the close button or the first item so that you're not confusing someone when they've opened this moment. Yeah, that's yeah. a bit tricky. And I think even even um, just like from a user experience standpoint, focusing, if there's an, if you have a modal where the primary action is like typing in some input or whatever, it's nice to focus that thing first. You don't have to, don't have to make them click. Yeah, definitely. It's a, that's a big UX win. Yeah, I love like just putting autofocus on an input it can be so useful. That even works in uh, React Native, which is great. Yeah, so, you know, it's also like some of the stuff becomes, I think, a little bit easier in React because you have the JavaScript is right there, right? You're not having to like go mess with jQuery, like in some other place to like grab your element. <laughs> it, it, like everything yeah. is right there to just change your, you know, call the focus method where you need it, um, right? Kind of in the component. Yes, you can do the advanced stuff when you need to, which is, which is nice. Another one I, I learned not that long ago, I guess, was was the you know the ahref empty string thing. I think ah. I think when Create React App added their JSX ally module, the ESLint thing that would check for like kind of low hanging fruit accessibility wise, that was one of the things that points out a lot of that and like image alt tags, and yeah, so it was. Interesting, just sort of like that was that was the trick back in the day, right? Like if you need to go somewhere else on the page, you're like ahref is nothing or ahref is pound, and that doesn't really mean anything. So it's like, hey, yeah. you should make this a button. Exactly, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's just knowing semantic elements too, right? Like if you're changing something on the page, that's probably a button. Yeah. Also, you know, back in the day, you couldn't really use buttons because they didn't work in all browsers. Internet Explorer 6 and stuff would just do bizarre stuff that nobody really wanted to deal with. But kind of none of those problems exist anymore. So this kind of, this gut instinct of like buttons are dangerous and scary, I'm going to have to do like extra testing because I'm using a button is just gone now. And anybody coming into it, you know, fresh can cannot have the baggage of all of the IE6 drama from back in the day. Definitely. You still do have to like reskin buttons, which can be a little, I think some people are scared of that, right? Because browser default buttons have styles baked into them, but right. it really is like, what, three lines of CSS? It's not, <laughs> yeah, not that bad. Not too bad. Not too bad. Just it Google like, it. I usually Google it, right? Just like figure it out and copy and paste and you're done. 
Yeah. And so many people these days are using just kind of off the shelf UI libraries or UI kits or whatever, like Bootstrap and stuff that that they'll take care of for you anyway. Yeah. And I think with React, right, there's all these new kind of like, uh, we've talked about a little bit, component libraries that you can pull from that have accessibility as top of mind, right? So Ryan Florence's Reach UI project is a big one. React Kit, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Yeah. But yeah, that just, I think just launched and it's another sort of component library with just like primitives that have accessibility already baked in. And that's, those are easy ways to just sort of not offload the accessibility work to someone else. Yeah. How do you spell that one? R-E-A-K-I-T. Yeah, React Kit. People love their their fancy naming, don't they? Yeah. Sorry for butchering that. (laughs) (laughs) What can we actually do practically like today, tomorrow, next sprint to, to start chipping away at getting better at this stuff? I think definitely, uh, you mentioned it, the ESLint, I think it's ESLint JSX Ally, yeah, I think yeah, is the, name of the, the plugin that you can add. Um, and that literally in your code is going to tell you as you're making the mistakes, it will sort of say like, alert, you should check this. So using some of these tools that are baked in, using uh, Lighthouse accessibility audits, but the first thing I would say is just pay attention to your DOM structure. And something I do is often when I'm building a component, I like... I lay out my DOM structure and then I actually look at it and I think, are there divs I can remove? Are there more semantic elements I should be using here? Um, That's like a good first step. And also testing yourself, right? Tab through a page that you built or tab through an element and see if it kind of focus goes where you expect it to. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So another side of that is kind of the, the human element of like everybody's busy, everybody's behind schedule. Like how do we get the PMs and the, the scrum master or whoever makes decisions these days to, to prioritize this stuff and actually get this work on the sprint or on into top of mind awareness for everybody? That's definitely a struggle. Um, I think a piece of that is sort of having a champion for accessibility on your team. Uh, at Netlify, uh, our technical front-end lead cares really deeply about accessibility, and it's something that she always makes sure to kind of push if if someone else is forgetting it or we ship something and we didn't think about it. Okay, well, let's focus on that next sprint. Let's make sure that we we fix that. Um, so having anyone on your team who's willing to be that voice, uh, I think, is is hugely important. And you know, the legal implications I think are also uh, <laughs> becoming more uh, more yeah. important as more companies are getting sued for inaccessible sites. That's a good point. Do you yeah. have any kind of like war stories of uh, like how this has played out in your life in reality? I wouldn't say I personally have war stories, but I always enjoy seeing um, 
well, I, I, maybe not enjoy, that's not the right word, but uh, <laughs> it's always interesting to see uh, the news stories that come out about big companies getting sued for having inaccessible sites. I think there was one I was just reading about on Twitter. I'm not sure whose site it was, but someone had spent like $66 million for and some agency to come in and redo their website and then got sued because it wasn't, it didn't meet the WCAG guidelines. Wow. Oops. <laughs> Man, who's making $66 million for a website? Good yeah, I, that was my first question. <laughs> yeah. I want to hire that sales guy. So, Dave, do they take accessibility seriously where you are working? Is there any an existing champion for accessibility? That's a good question. So I am currently solo, uh, but, but I'm working, on, working with a couple of clients and... Uh, yeah, one of them is one of them is, is good about that. I think they're the developers in that team. Definitely, like I would say, it's it's kind of something they're trying to bake in as they're building new components. I don't think they're really going back and rewriting things, but sort of like as they as they change things, they'll they'll try to make it more accessible. Or as they make new components, try to use the right you know use semantic elements and assign roles to things where they need to be and that kind of stuff. I like that approach too, right? Like. Maybe if you're touching the code again, even if it's old, if you're going, you know, to fix a bug or something and you see yeah. a bunch of divs or you see something that is sort of, you know, not quite right, like fix it then. At least you're doing something, right? And it's better. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wonder if accessibility will maybe reach some a tipping point. Like, you know, a few years ago when when well, more than a few years ago, when like design was sort of a nice to have and and then Apple kind of took the world by storm. And suddenly, like design is is like table stakes. Like if you if you want your startup to succeed or whatever, like you have to have good design. And I wonder if accessibility will will sort of inch that as it, as it kind of gains more mind share. Where it's like, I think you know that users with disabilities must, you know, I would assume they would be really excited about products that that cater to them better than others. You know, and I think that could be a differentiating factor from like a business standpoint. Yeah. Where if you're like, hey, you know, we're the most accessible, whatever, that, that could be a good way to get more customers. Yeah. And just thinking about um, there are stats out there about how many, you know, users, you know, are we think are using assistive technologies. And um, I don't have those stats in front of me, but I think that's a really good way to kind of say, look at all these users that we're possibly completely alienating by not yeah. allowing them to have access to our, our product or our site. Yeah, I think I think it's it's easy to if no one's if no one's actively complaining, I think it's easy to just sort of like ignore a thing. But but I think the flip side of that is that if you can make people really happy by being like, oh man, I finally found an accessible you know grocery list app or whatever, then then like they're going to recommend recommend that to all their friends and stuff. And yeah, I mean we're engineers and we focus so much on the technology and the code, but we're building things for humans, right? And so th that is like the most important, I think, bottom line. And so when you're building things for humans, you need to build them for all humans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the the overall kind of vibe of the culture of the industry is changing. It feels like we're, as as an industry, getting more mature. And one of the signs that I've seen of that is like, did you see recently the um, Xbox put out a new accessible controller? It has all these things like you can plug into it for like all the different assistive technologies can plug into this new fancy Xbox controller. And then it lets anybody and everybody be able to play games with everybody else. And it just seems kind of like a, what's the opposite of a canary in the coal mine? 
But anyway, like, a, like they, a good canary in the coal mine. Yeah, it's the canary is getting healthier and happier. <laughs> Shows the air is getting better. I don't know. Yeah, that's a, a really cool thing that that Xbox did. The ad, if you haven't seen it, go look it up. It's it's touching, right? To see all these people who probably couldn't play games before. And they talk about it, right? Their experience of saying, like, I went over to my friend's house and I couldn't play games with them because I couldn't use the controller properly. I mean, thinking about putting yourself in their shoes, right? Um, it's it's huge. So um we we talked about the history of like why people say that React is a problem and JavaScript things in general. So, and the solution to that is basically we have to just learn more stuff about, you know, focus management just as, as a concept, you know, the, the concept of, you know, how roles apply to DOM nodes and how you can kind of get functionality for free. And it's really at the HTML level too. A lot of that stuff is, it's not like React or framework specific stuff. I think as, as we as we have like this sort of influx of new developers where react is the first thing they learn i think it's it's really easy to to see things as like oh how do i do this in react where it's really like well that's that's html actually like you have to go and read the html spec or mdn or something definitely i think a lot of what we've talked about really just today is basic HTML um, and kind of basic concepts and not so much React specific. It's just a matter of making sure, especially if you come from more of a JavaScript or programming background or a bootcamp or whatever, that you consider what is semantic HTML and kind of dive into that a little bit, even if it's not what you're, you know, super interested in, because it is an important piece of building a React app. Yeah. So like education is a big factor. And with that, I think part of the education thing is, well, first of all, you got to learn that there's something that you have to learn and then that you have to learn the basic concepts and then getting more familiar with, the, with like, here's the expected tools that you should probably be using. And just by using the tools, you'll, you'll learn what all you need to do. Like, that's one of the things that I love about React is that if you screw up and you shoot yourself in the foot, it will show you the shrapnel. Like, you need to use uh, unique keys when you're array, whatever. So just like getting all that stuff into the the console when you're developing things is kind of the the new baseline for how we learn how to code is like you learn by doing by throwing yourself into the deep end and yeah using those tools that get that information to you in context as you're building stuff I think is really useful and is a good way to like onboard new team members of like here are the tools we're using it, you know, we don't allow you to land this diff if there are any warnings. Go figure it out. Yeah, I think trying it is huge. And even um, starting with the docs, right? React, if you, like, there's an entire page on accessibility in the React docs. Really? Most of it is more about the things we talked about. It's more about, like, HTML and, and good practices. And so even just starting sometimes with the docs and looking and seeing, is there anything noted about accessibility in, you know, in what I'm using? Yeah, I got to go read the docs again. I remember I, I read all of the new Hooks docs on a like a live stream and it took four hours. So I think dedicating some time to really sitting and, and understanding how things work and investing the time in your own, you know, or us individually in our own skill set and just learning and relearning the basics to make sure that we... Because accessibility is really, really, really basic stuff that everybody should know, and yet somehow we still don't. <laughs> yeah, I think looking, again, also looking at other people's code is huge. Um, and 
making sure that if you are a more experienced developer who's putting demos and examples out there into the world, make them accessible, right? Um, and make a point to include that as a note in your readme or whatever, so that people looking at your code um, also are just getting some of those good practices baked in. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a big part of it too. So so many people learn from courses and blog posts and that kind of stuff. And if, if those can be sort of like accessibility just baked in um, to the point where that becomes like the new normal, then I think it'll yeah. be a lot easier for people to just be like, oh yeah, of course, I, I don't use divs everywhere. I use, you know, the right element. Yeah, kind of like the, it's like part of gamification of like, here's, here's you know, here's what everybody's doing. Do you want to fit in with everybody else? Or do you want to be some weirdo out on your own doing it like, wait, you're using divs? Weird. <laughs> Not only are you using divs, but you're alienating like, I don't know, some massive percentage of people who could use your product, right? Like yeah. there's, there's yeah. all different layers yeah. of that. Yeah, but I think just making sure that we hammer home the, the, the tribe value of it and that individually we don't accept substandard things. We don't accept abusing our users or neglecting them. We don't accept, you know, weird stuff. I don't know, bad stuff. I like that. Yeah, sort of a, a manifesto as as developers. Yes. We don't do bad things on purpose. I think one of the interesting things too is that we do say like it's basic stuff, but it, there are parts of it that are relatively easy to, to build into your process. But there are other things that are more complicated. I think a lot of people kind of say, oh, semantic markup is easy. But we talked about that, right? And an app, it can be can feel subjective or it can mean really looking up each of these elements. So there's somewhere in between, right? You've got to figure out kind of where that space is in between saying, oh, this is really easy. And, oh, this is like this massive area that I know nothing about and figure out kind of how to make that work for you. And, you know, at Netlify, it, it often means keeping all this stuff in mind when building something. But sometimes we do go back and say, okay, we didn't do a good job, you know, with the the keyboard, you know, uh, accessibility of this element, or we could improve that, and and we'll go back after and and try and try and make it better. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I think I think treating it as if if you can, I, I kind of like the idea that something is better than nothing. I think I mean certainly strive for having everything perfect, but but don't let that sort of prevent you from starting. I think that there's this, especially if you have an existing app where. Right. It's not very accessible now. You're not going to go from zero to accessible in, in a day or something, or in one commit. It's going to be it's going to be a while. But but that's okay. I mean, like you know, if you if you inch inch towards that and, and just kind of do a little bit every day or a little bit every sprint or something, yeah, I, I think that might make it more palatable to teams too. If you if you don't say like we have to fix accessibility now and take the next month to do that. But That's instead, like, we're just going to build new features. Every time we build new feature, it's going to be accessible. Yeah, and you're going to make mistakes also, right? Like, I mm. make lots of mistakes all the time in the accessibility that I'm trying to bake into things. And some of it is just learning, learning from other people on your team, learning from examples you see, but not being afraid to also mess up sometimes. And if you do an accessibility audit or someone comes in and says, hey, like, that you added a million ARIA attributes to this thing, and that's actually not helping anything. It's okay, right? Like we're all kind of learning as we go along, and and that's as long as you're improving, right? That's the uh, the goal. Yeah, yeah. The aria attributes too. I th I think it's so. So what's your understanding with aria attributes? Yeah, that's um, it. Can be tough, right? I think the first project I worked on that I was trying to to 
consider accessibility really deeply, I just dropped ARIA attributes on everything. So I was like, ooh, the more yeah. context I add to this, the better it's going to be. Right. Um, but that can actually be real annoying to someone using assistive technology because it's like, it's adding sometimes context that they don't need, especially if you're already using semantic uh, elements. So I personally try and only really use ARIA attributes when uh, the state or the property is sort of changing. So Something like ARIA expanded uh, is really useful to use if you have an, an element that is going to expand in some way, sort of like a drop down or something along those lines to, to provide context for state changes. And React is really great for that because you're already probably have a state for is open or you know whatever you're, you're using to, to manage that. And you can sort of just toggle your ARIA attribute based on state. Yeah, I like that. So what is the actual like end user experience of like a screen raiser for some of these ARIA attributes? Does it just say more stuff? Does it say it in a different voice? <laughs> um, you can customize the voice uh, on, on the screen reader itself uh, on most of them anyway. And one of the challenges of accessibility is that different screen readers uh, and different assistive technology interprets the kind of baked in semantics a little bit differently. So that can be one of the headaches for people uh, who are really deep into accessibility and are testing with all of the you know voiceover and JAWS and all of these other options. But generally something um, that, you know, those ARIA attributes will do is it will give just some context, right? So it'll read like, it'll let you know that it's an element that can be expanded. And then once it's expanded, it will announce that you are in that, uh. that state. So it just lets someone who can't necessarily see it know like, oh, I clicked this and something happened. Uh, and this is the thing that happened. Yeah, because you kind of take that for granted when you click on a thing and then suddenly it's open. You, the only way you know that it's open is visually and... If you cannot visually perceive that state change, then yeah, I guess you need to auditorily perceive that. You can't just use sound effects. Boing! <laughs> that wouldn't be clear. Yeah, it's it's things I think we take for granted a lot, just because we rely on all of our senses, and we, you know, those of us who uh, don't have a, a disability in that way, um, you know, it's just something we don't necessarily always think about, but. If you use a screen reader, even for like five minutes, you'll start to realize real quick um, the things that you can't necessarily pick up visually. And also sometimes like close your eyes or turn your brightness all the way down or turn your monitor off and try and <laughs> try and actually access something without actually looking at it for those of us who, who are sighted. I remember we, um, at my, my last job a few years ago, we had somebody on the team, his wife was blind and so... I think he had her test some stuff just uh, or he already knew like from her from her perspective what it would be like. So he was just naturally the champion for that sort of thing on that team because he just had much more firsthand experience of like what she has to deal with on an everyday basis. And that was that was very, very insightful. Just having that firsthand experience of a of a real person and what they actually care about. Yeah, definitely. That I mean, I think that's when a lot of people kind of the light bulb goes off if they know someone uh, who personally has experienced this. Or um, another thing is like temporary disability, right? Like right. I actually was having some uh, double vision issues not so long ago and like was having trouble looking at my screen and starting to think, okay, well, this is a thing that's going to go away because I'm going to go to the eye doctor and they're going to fix whatever the problem is. But like right in this moment, I also still need to do my job. So sometimes we also are going to rely on these things in our life, even if we don't have, you know, a disability that's going to affect us for forever. Yeah. I've been experimenting with an eye tracker. It's this, uh, it's a Toby T O B I I eye tracking 
where you can kind of you can use your computer entirely with without touching it just by using your eyes and it is really frustrating <laughs> like really annoying so i can't imagine how somebody who actually has to use these things and you know the least that we can do is is make it accessible for them so that it's possible for them to use it but imagine how frustrating it would be you invest you know 20 30 minutes to trying to to use some web app and then it times out or you know or there's some stupid part of the form that you just is physically impossible for you to interact with because it just doesn't support the the like the 5 minutes worth of accessibility effort that it would take to make this person use it and they're just stuck what can they do well they, that was an hour now go i guess try and find something else to do yeah and i mean that's a great point too that there's a lot more than just screen readers i think we tend to kind of like go directly to that because it's the thing that we can test ourselves and is sort of kind of the de facto okay you can't see the screen so we need to to give you some context for what's happening on it but there are all kinds of things, right? Um, sip and puff devices where people need to like blow right. into something to activate or to move down a page. Often that's kind of similar to managing focus. It's sort of like us tapping through. But then there's just people who are power users also, right? Like a lot of developers don't want to leave the yeah. keyboard. So they are going to tap through your website. So some of, you know, it's, you're improving the experience for everyone um, across all assistive technologies uh, when you focus on accessibility. That is something that I've seen huge is like when you invest the effort to make things accessible, it makes it so much easier to do your integration testing. It makes it so much easier for your power users. It makes it so much easier for automating things and for, for doing scripting. And, and now like some of the new stuff that Google's coming out with where they're like the Google Assistant is automatically like filling stuff in for you on the, the site. It's like it's using the, the accessibility hooks of the site to understand it in order to navigate it for you. So it's not even just for the, you know, whatever percentage of our users require these things, but it's also for being future-proof and other stuff. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, Long ago, the argument for accessibility was SEO, right? Like if you're using accessibility and you're building with that in mind, it's it's automatically better for search engines uh, picking stuff up. So um, that I think has sort of held true in just the sense that like you're just you're future proofing what what you're building. Yeah, that's why I always uh, ended up using it. Like one thing that I experimented with in 2005 or something was just going to the extreme with semantic markup and having just delivering really really thin content to to the the browser with a single script that would then download. The, all the CSS and the JavaScript that would just decorate it and progressively enhance that content. And it was great for SEO, but it was just like, it didn't really work in reality because there were no libraries that supported it. And, but now I'm seeing like Google and Facebook are doing very similar kind of things conceptually with their like instant uh, experiences. I forget what Google calls it, but right within the search results, you can tap on a thing and instantly get the results without having to download the entire website first. And then Facebook's has their instant experiences on there. That's it's, it's like a new kind of web experience where it's using web technology, but not inside of a regular web browser. That's very yeah. interesting stuff. I think keeping all that stuff in mind and just knowing like what the possibilities are is so important 
thinking like even when the Apple watch came out, right. And we started talking about like accessing stuff on your watch, (laughs) this stuff becomes even more important to just like, you know, make sure that it's going to automatically work. And I think it was something when the first Apple watch came out, they said that sites needed to, to work down to like 320 pixels wide responsibly in order to like be able to be seen or looked at on the watch. So people who had already said, oh, well, most iPhones are like 375 pixels now. So that's the the smallest Mm -hmm. breakpoint I'm going to worry about. Uh, We're suddenly kind of screwed because there was this new device. So it's also like, you know, you sort of have to think less about what we have now and more kind of generally about like making whatever you're building work on as many devices as you can, as many, you know, viewports as you can. um, You never know what the next thing is going to be. That's true. Now VR is going to be a thing in like 20 years. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that'll, oh yeah. How would VR change things? I guess the, the eye tracking stuff would be a big deal there. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like the, the sort of the takeaway there is make it good for computers and for humans <laughs> by yeah, making it more accessible. Have empathy for the computers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if you can't have empathy for the humans, have empathy for the computers. <laughs> and good for future you when you have to... <laughs> or, yeah, or future you. <laughs> new tech comes out. Yeah, some people are, are very good at having empathy for themselves, and that's it. And that's okay. Start somewhere. Yeah, and hopefully those people are on a team with other people who care yeah. a lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> You've got to balance yeah. each other out. Yeah, well, if you can, if you can leverage the, the caring about yourself to make your site more accessible... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. A win. <laughs> Narcissism for good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maybe we should move on to picks then. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com react. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. So, Thomas, do you have any picks? Yeah, so I found this sitting on my shelf. It is uh, Journey by Starlight by Ian Flintcroft and Britt Spencer. It's like um, the writings of uh, Albert Einstein, but as a comic book. So it's just like, it's imagine sitting on a, a photon and traveling and, you know, what would you experience? And it, it kind of illustrates everything in a way that's actually easy to understand for people who aren't uh, math nerds. And I think it's cool. That's super fun. That looks awesome. And my other pick is um, PhotoViz, where uh, this guy, Nick Felton, did a bunch of interesting things where he combined photos to, to show you data about, oh, well, that's not, uh, where they, combining like every single photo of somebody throughout the entire year to see you know, like an average of what they look like or like the cover is all of the, the planes taking off at an airport combined into a single photo. It's, it's very interesting. 
That's cool. fun. Some good data visualization there. Yeah. Very cool. Um, Leslie, any picks from you? Yeah. So we talked a lot about accessibility, right? A couple of quick uh, additional tools and things to uh, to know. My pick would be Udacity's uh, web accessibility course. It's free. It's pretty in-depth. It's actually where I started when I was really like, oh, what is this accessibility thing? Um, so big, big props for that. There's also sort of a blog slash site called inclusive-components.design, which is done by Hayden Pickering, who's a big kind of voice in the accessibility world. And he um, has a bunch of examples of common patterns. So if you're not using a component library or something that already has accessibility baked in, that's a really awesome place to start. And he does sort of like case studies of walking through like why you would add an ARIA uh, attribute here, why you might not. So that's super cool. And then a non-accessibility pick, I recently moved into a new house, which is very exciting. And I wanted some help with interior design. There's a super cool um, site called Modsy. It's M-O-D-S-Y. And basically you work with a designer, you tell them what you want. And they create a 3D rendering of your room. Uh, so you just take a couple oh. pictures and like measure your, your space. And they come back in like five to seven days with really, really cool, accurate 3D rendering. That's um, really cool. scale of all the interior elements that they pick and furniture and stuff. It's super cool. Okay, I got to check that out. That looks awesome. <laughs> I was awesome. super impressed with it. I was not expecting a lot. And it came back and it literally looked like a photo of the room. Very cool. Yeah, that's really cool. I've tried to do that myself with just like SketchUp and measuring the room, and it's 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 a disaster. <laughs> it's, it's very Ain't difficult. nobody got time for that. <laughs> no, no, and it doesn't look probably nearly as good as as Monty's thing. So from for me, I've got uh, I guess I've got two picks. One is I hope it's okay to mention another accessibility thing. Marcy Sutton's course on Egghead is was um kind of where I started with accessibility, and I. I Learned a lot in just the first couple lessons. And true to Egghead style, the lessons are pretty short and focused. I think it's called Start Building Accessible Web Applications Today. And I think it's available to everyone. You might have to sign up, but I think it's free. And my sort of non-tech pick is um, a book by Paul Jarvis called Company of One. It's kind of about uh, building your own business, but, but focusing on... Um, sort of staying small and staying either solo or, you know, small team freelancers or whatever, instead of seeking outside funding and growing to some massive proportion. So it appeals to me as a <laughs> small business owner, but it's a, it's a good book. So where can people find you online, Leslie? Yeah, Twitter is the best place. Leslie C. Dubs. So C. Dubs, <laughs> because my last name is Cone Wine, C. W. Yeah, you get it. Also, GitHub, same same handle. Oh, and the Netlify blog. I should also mention, right? I work at Netlify. I have one blog post total so far, uh, which is the one about accessibility and React. But hopefully, we'll be writing a bit more uh, there as well. More to come. Awesome. Well, thanks, Leslie, for coming on the show and talking to us about accessibility. It's been great. Yeah, had a great time. Thanks. I'm definitely inspired. I need to up my game. Likewise. <laughs> All right. I think that that concludes this episode of React Roundup. Good night, everybody. everybody. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. Mm-hmm.